Hello, and welcome back to the PC Speaking Podcast. We started a new series last week, Do the Right Thing, Why Morality Matters. We're back in that today. Um, And again, hey, I just want to say thanks for tuning in, being part of this. I appreciate you. Um, Please, if you are so inclined, like, share. Share it with somebody who you think might find it interesting or helpful. Comment, whatever you'd like to do. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, I mentioned last week that we were going to start answering some questions as part of the podcast. Today, we're answering a couple of questions. Um, I've received several recently, some around uh, different topics, marriage, um, aliens, Halloween, all kinds of cool stuff. I'll be trying to answer and get to those in the podcast over the coming weeks. Today, we answer a couple of questions and are talking about how a church deals with immorality within a church. Um. I don't always have time to answer these kinds of questions on Sunday morning, but on a platform like this, if somebody doesn't want to hear that part of it, they can fast forward through it. But one of the questions I received recently was this. It says, if God knew that Satan would rebel and that humans would sin, why did he still decide to create the universe, knowing he would have to start all over again? Um, This is a good question that... I think a lot of people have asked in similar ways or questions that would relate closely to this. And there are several questions that are in a somewhat similar vein, like, um, you know, did God create evil or why would he create evil or why does a God allow evil? Things like that. Now, this particular question begins with the word if, if God knew, which Really, that raises another question. Did God know? These kinds of questions can be uh, can quickly, you know, take a trip down a rabbit hole. But one of the attributes of God is that He is omniscient. That means He's all knowing, and the Bible says that He knows our thoughts. He's perfect in knowledge, and that His understanding has no limit. So, according to Scripture, God is all knowing. So we have to come to the conclusion that yes, God did did know what was going to happen when He created people when he created Satan. Yes, he did know Satan would rebel and humans would sin. And so knowing that, why did he still decide still decide to create the universe, knowing he would have to start all over again? There's the end of this question that says, knowing that he would have to start all over again, what God is doing in his plan of redemption is not a complete start over. Uh, just to clarify that, it's more uh, a restoration to the way he intended things to be. God is also omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful. In Genesis, you see he speaks, and what God speaks becomes reality. Let there be light, there was light. So it's not a strain for God to create things. And I'm not saying anything or picking on the person who asked the question, not saying anything about that person. There are many, many people who've asked similar questions. I don't think this was their thought process. However, at the same time, something to be aware of with a why does God allow or why does God do the things he does, there is usually an assumption that comes with that question that God could do or could have done a better job. Almost like things would be better had God not created Satan and people because Satan and people chose to rebel, or it would have been better if God had uh, kept Satan and people from 
doing what it was that they decided to do. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the person asking the question didn't intend it this way, but the question and questions like it, you can see in those questions an underlying humanistic assumption that says, I'm thinking there is a better way to do this than the way God did it, which is interesting. And that creeps into our thoughts, and that's easy for that to happen. It's loosely similar to to the question that if God is all-powerful, then why does he allow evil in the world? And sometimes in those kinds of questions, um, someone can be saying almost unwittingly that if I were God, I would do a better job. Like I said, I don't believe that's the intention of the person who asked the question, but it's something for us all to think about. And this is a why question. And the Bible does not give a comprehensive answer to this question. So any answer will be at least partly speculation. The Bible also says that God's ways are higher than ours. Um, Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, you can read that. So the reason we don't have a comprehensive answer very well may be that the answer is beyond our comprehension. For God to be God, there must be things about him that are beyond our comprehension. If I can't fully comprehend something, or if I can fully comprehend something, I have mastered it. And why would I worship a God I can fully comprehend and master? But that doesn't mean we can't have some understanding either. Lucifer, or Satan, was created good and with good purpose, just like people. He was also given a free will, just like people. He chose to rebel. Um, with the ability to choose, that's always going to be an option. Otherwise, there's no option or there's no free will. So free will equates equates to ability to choose. So even so, God is still able to work out his will and purpose in spite of Satan's rebellion. God's plan of salvation was in place before time as we know it. The Bible tells us it was in place from eternity past, Revelation uh, chapter 13, verse 8. God even uses Satan, ironically for Satan, at times to restore people to where they should be. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but Satan played a part in bringing sin and death and suffering into the world. And we talked about this last week and saturating moralistic teaching in the gospel, because if we only teach on moralism, we leave people in this inescapable prison of sin. And the gospel is what God uses to reconcile us to him. Uh, morality teaching is a map to help us navigate a fallen world. Now, ironically for Satan, it was through suffering and death that came into the world as a result of sin that God worked out his solution for sin. He actually used suffering and death to accomplish his purpose, the suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That demonstrates the omnipotence or that God is all-powerful. So I can't answer exactly why, but we can see how God has used Satan, how he's used suffering and death in working out his will, and also in demonstrating his love towards us. And I would encourage you to think about that and meditate on that. It's pretty spectacular when you think about it, what God has done and how he has used even suffering and death to demonstrate his love towards us. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe that's the reason he created beings who he knew would rebel. He could use those things to demonstrate his love towards us. Even our rebellion 
would be used to demonstrate who he is and ultimately glorify him. Um, so yeah, difficult to answer that question. Why question? The Bible doesn't give us a specific answer, but hopefully that's somewhat helpful. Okay, next question. Uh, this is um, a, maybe a little easier to answer. Actually, it's probably a lot easier to answer. It says, do a lot of contemporary churches accept um, sin, for example, moral sins, adultery, and excuse it with no guidance towards repentance, restitution, and church discipline? This is another good question. Um, we'll divide this one into two main parts. When we read this, it's reasonable to think there either is or is not a way that churches are supposed to handle biblical immorality. Do we do something about it as a church when it's in church or not? And if we do, what do we do about it? In the question itself, you can kind of already begin to see there's an understanding or an expectation that something needs to be done when biblical morality is being disregarded among church people. Uh, guidance towards repentance, restitution, and church discipline, as the question states. And this is a great question because it gives us a great springboard to talk about a few things that need to be talked about. That aside for a moment, let's answer the first part. Do a lot of contemporary churches accept sin and excuse it? Here's how I approach that. Um, I am a full-time pastor at my church, Hinderland Baptist Church, and um, I don't get to visit other churches. I mean, I do, but it's pretty rare. And I'm, I'm at the church full time. However, that being said, I do know and speak to people who attend and visit other churches. I read about churches. I read about trends. I hear about things that are going on in churches in the community, sometimes whether I want to hear about it or not. So to answer that question, is that happening in church? Is it being excused in church? To answer that by my own personal firsthand experience, I have to say that in my experience, I don't have that experience because I'm not actually there to see it. However, if I go by what I hear and read and what people tell me, I would have to say, yes, it sounds like a lot of contemporary churches accept sin and excuse it. As we go forward, I want to bring out this thought as well. A, a church, even a messed up church, is or should be full of saved believers. If it's if it's not that, it's something else. Full of God's people who are part of the bride of Christ. If it's not that, it's not a church. It's somewhat metaphorical, but church is considered the bride of Christ. And uh, personally, I'm definitely not a brawler, not a fighter. I may have been when I was much younger, but I'm not now. However, if someone were to speak poorly or give my bride grief and put her down, that would likely change. So if Jesus considers uh, a church his bride, even if it's somewhat metaphorical, I need to tread lightly in how I speak about churches, uh, no matter how off track they might be. The church at Corinth, for instance, was a mess, but it was still a church. But that also doesn't supersede the reality of dealing with sin in church and recognizing it as such. And we're going to talk about handling sin in church. And then um, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the specific sin the question brings up, sexual sin. We'll be talking about that. Um, 
hopefully we'll get some uh, good attendance in church, some some good um, downloads for the podcast for that. But that won't be next week. It'll be the following week. Some may not know or realize that open moral sin is not something that should be happening in church, shouldn't be accepted, shouldn't be excused among membership of a church. I was talking to someone about this once, and they told me that there was a lot of sexual sin happening in this person's church. And the church leadership just kind of turned a blind eye to that. And many Christians probably don't know this, but that's not supposed to happen. This is something that a church is supposed to address, and many Christians don't even know that, let alone how to address it. But that's what we're talking about. So what is a church supposed to do about sin among church members. And something to understand about this is that there are different levels to it. There's a lot of nuance involved. There's a process we're given to follow uh, from the book of Matthew. There's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm also going to read a little portion of our church's constitution just to talk about how our particular church does it. Maybe that might be helpful for someone else. But I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 5 because it deals with a situation involving sexual sin uh, in the church at Corinth. And I'm also going to read a section from our constitution, church constitution, that talks about how we deal with this at our church. And then we're going to also look at uh, some passages or a passage from Matthew. And we'll walk through how to take care of this, how to do it. This is a fair bit of reading kind of to start. So if you can you know, focus and bear with me and concentrate on this for a little bit, that will be helpful. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this is where we're going to start. And this is what it says. It says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, but you are arrogant. Instead, you should have mourned so that he who has done this deed might be removed from among you. For indeed, though absent in body, but present in spirit, I have already, as if I were present, judged him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled along with my spirit in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch? Therefore, purge out the old yeast that you may be a new batch, since you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old yeast, nor with the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Uh, Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world or the covetous or extortioners or the idolaters, since you would then need to go out of the world. But I've written to you not to keep company with any man who is called a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. Do not even eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But God judges those who are outside. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So, a sexual sin is often a problem in contemporary church. Um, That's just basically churches that are uh, present 
in the community in the time in which we live. It was also a problem in the church at Corinth 2,000 years ago. And I have no reason to doubt that it has been a problem throughout church history, and it will likely remain a problem until Jesus returns. This is true. However, an equal problem is not addressing it in a biblical way. In our passage, Paul has heard that there's sexual sin happening in the church at Corinth. In regards to that, he says it's so bad that even people outside of the church don't do this kind of thing, and and they see it as evil. And what's happening is someone was having sexual relations with his father's wife. Now, my commentaries and such say it was probably his stepmom. Maybe that's just to try to soften the blow a bit. I don't know. Um, But there's really no reason to dig into that deeply. But I've been in ministry for a while, and um, it's often shocking what goes on. The average person in church really probably has no idea how often sin and things like that are going on within a church. And Paul is telling the Corinthians that they need to deal with this by excluding this person from among their fellowship. It's destroying the purity and witness of the church. It's destroying the witness of Jesus. Paul says, deliver this person to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Um, I'm going to read Article 5, Section 2 and 3 of our church constitution that deal with this topic and gives the protocol that we use in dealing with sin in our church. Article 5, Section 2 says, discipline of members and conflict resolution. So take note, um, the discipline process and conflict resolution between people are very similar. And these are things you could use even if you're you know, uh, not a church person. You could use this concept to resolve conflict. This is what... Our Constitution says, it says it is vital to the testimony of Christ and the church that purity and peace be protected and preserved. It shall be the duty of the lead pastor, elders, or members they appoint to seek to reclaim any member living in disregard of biblical principles. The lead pastor and elders should promptly reprimand anyone interrupting work or disturbing peace within the church through slander, falsehood, gossip, sowing discord, backbiting, conspiracy, or other unfair and unchristian methods. Individuals may have the right to a private opinion on all questions. No right exists to engage in secret or open propaganda that might disturb the peace and well-being of the church. When the membership or leadership has determined a course of action, that course becomes the duty of every member. If a member cannot conscientiously follow the course of action, that member shall quietly and peacefully withdraw from fellowship. If a member lives in conflict with the above principles and will not rectify themselves through confession and repentance, that member shall be dealt with according to Matthew 18, 16 through 20 and 1 Corinthians 5. Failure to scripturally correct their conduct will result in said member's exclusion from the fellowship of the church. Any personal offenses between members should be settled should be promptly and privately settled following our Savior's instruction in Matthew 18, 15, and 16, and only brought before the lead pastor and elders as a last resort. If attempts at personal resolution are unsuccessful, that member should submit such concerns first to the lead pastor and elders as a written and signed statement. To avoid unnecessary public scandal or injury to individuals or the church, the lead pastor and elders may investigate any case. After investigation, they may decide to make a a recommendation to the congregation regarding possible dismissal from membership. Such a recommendation may be given to the church 
without details to avoid undue hurt and embarrassment. A member in violation of the above principles shall be excluded from fellowship by a two-thirds majority vote of the church. Section 3, dismissal of members. Dismissal shall be by transfer of membership, exclusion, request, lack of attendance, or death. 90 days of non-attendance will result in dismissal. The lead pastor and elders may approve an exception for extenuating circumstances such as illness resulting in the inability to attend extended travel, etc. When a member teaches or practices doctrines not in agreement with the Bible or this Constitution, it will result in church discipline and possible exclusion. Any member in good standing may be granted a recommendation to any scriptural church by the lead pastor or elders upon that church's request. Well, that's a, a mouthful, isn't it? Uh, it seems like a lot of hassle, I would think. Uh, why does why does dealing with sin in church matter? Wouldn't it be easier just to just ignore it? Is it really that big of a deal? Aren't we just stirring up and causing more problems than we need to? Yes, it would be easier. That is true. But it would not be better. As our Constitution says at our church, it, it's vital to the testimony of Christ and the church that purity and peace be protected and preserved. This is a process that's laid out in Scripture that we're supposed to follow. And I've been through this probably five or six times um, in a formal way. I've seen it go all the way through. I've seen it stop at the very first step. And these these things are sometimes simple. They're sometimes complicated. There was an instance in a church where I was a member, this was a long time ago, where a lady just would not stop gossiping and sowing dissent and discord among the membership in a church. So we we excluded her from membership. Um, I've also dealt with sexual sin in the church a few times. I followed the procedure given in Scripture um, every time. And I really don't like doing this. It's not fun. I don't enjoy it. Um. There have been times where people in ministry were involved. There's a couple of times I spoke to couples who were part of the church and who decided to move in together who were not married. And again, I, I hate doing that. Um, but I'm not doing right by God, the church, or the people who are sinning if I don't confront this. And neither is anyone else in the church. And I was very relieved that I was uh, very well received by the people I approached and they quickly rectified things. And that's awesome when that happens. And sometimes we all make decisions that aren't the best. And someone comes to us and says something about what we're doing or what we're involved in. And we go, oh, you know what? You're right. And I'm going to course correct. And that's the end of it. And that's all it needs to be. And that's, that's great when it happens like that. That's ideal. Now, one lady, I even had a lady thank me one time who I'd approached. She said, I knew what I was doing was wrong. I don't know why I made that decision and was actually thankful that someone had cared enough and come to her and said something about it. But there's the other side of that too, where you talk about church discipline and people will say things like, oh, that's that's not very loving, or you're so, so judgmental, or why are you so hard on people? But a couple of things to understand about this is that God's not going to bless sin. He's not going to bless the people committing it, and he's not going to bless a church that just allows it. And if you think about it, maybe you're someone who has been in a situation where you are living in a place where you know that what you're doing is sinful and you know you should not be doing this. And if that is you in that case, think about that. Did God bless that? Did it feel like you were being blessed in that? Um, 
something to think about. But there's a long process you go through before you get to the point of excluding someone from the membership of a church. And you, you, you don't love people if you don't want what's best for them. When people say, oh, it's not very loving, it, you want what's best for them. If you love something, that's what you want. If you know God is not going to bless a decision and they're going to hurt themselves and the church, if you don't bring it up, you don't really care. Or maybe you do care, but you care more about your own comfort than you do actually going to someone and talking to them about something. Uh, and in today's culture, I, I think it's another factor that even Christians don't understand a lot of this stuff. I've talked to several people who, when it comes to di- church discipline, older folks have been around for a while, and they say, you know, I just haven't heard anybody talk about this in, in literally decades sometimes. Um, but it does happen. And unfortunately, it seems like it's fairly cop common that it does happen, sin in church, and it's often ignored under the false guise of being loving. So we're talking about the process that a church goes through in dealing with sin among its membership. And something you need to understand up front is something Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, because this is important. He mentions a little bit elsewhere too, but he says, what have I to do with judging those also who are outside do you not judge those who are inside, but God judges those who are outside. So what we're talking about when we talk about church discipline is people who are members of a church, not non-members, whether they are visiting regular attendees or somewhere in secular culture. Verse 13 says God judges those who are outside. So this applies to people who are members of a local church. Now, if you're part of a church who doesn't really have a membership. I I don't know how you would handle that, but that's up to however your church decides to handle it. But this is for people who are members of a church. Excuse me. And understanding this is for people inside the church. It also gives us a better understanding of the gospel and moral teaching, because I think sometimes what happens is Christians, they mean well, but they take biblical morality to the world when what we're supposed to be taking to the world is a gospel because people need that first. And then we can work on the morality later as they become part of the church and we disciple them and help them grow. But church discipline is for saved and baptized church members who are knowingly living in rebellion to God's commands. And the gospel is for people outside church. I'll say it again. This is for people inside church, church membership. And the process of church discipline involves four steps, and Jesus outlines what those are in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. And I I read from our church constitution, this is also for personal conflict resolution. You can use this for that as well. But the first step begins in Matthew 18, 15. And this step is one that is private and it's informal. This isn't something that's public. It's just between two individuals. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. He says, now, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So the first step is when you see sin or someone offends you, you go to that person and you tell them. Um, This is informal. It's private. It's non-confrontational. It's just between two people. 
we go to someone personally and say, you know, I, whatever it might be, I know you're lying about this, or I know this is happening, or whatever it may be. And we both know neither one of us is perfect, but we also know that what you're doing is not right. And we also know that God's not going to bless this. And I hope you understand me coming to you about it, and I hope you would care enough to do the same for me. And the reality is, is that at this point, it's hardly anything. Um, And the great majority of reasonable people are going to say, you know what? You're right. I shouldn't do that. I'm going to get myself back on track. And that's what I've seen happen most of the time. And that's ideal. If that happens, perfect. You know, that's, that's a wonderful thing when it works like that. It strengthens your relationship with that person. And it strengthens and protects your church as well. Sin is going to happen. But when it's handled like this and it's received well and people are like, whoops, and they just course correct and they're like, I'm sorry about that. My bad. They repent and they move on. God is pleased. And I believe God blesses that. And that's where it ends. And nothing else is said about it. No one else needs to know about it. And that's where it stays. That's the right thing to do. But in regards to the sin happening in the church at Corinth, unfortunately, they didn't do the right thing. Paul says, you should have mourned this, but you're arrogant about it. This is a letter that's written to the whole church. So everyone knows about it, but no one is talking to the offending parties about it, obviously. It's like everyone is talking about this behind the Father's back. It's not like everyone would have seen this happening either. So how do you think they all knew about it? They all knew about it through gossip. That's also a sin that should be addressed through the process of church discipline. Slander, falsehood, gossip, sowing discord, backbiting, conspiracy, all those are sins that should be addressed. And if you don't, they will fester and will grow into other things. Often when someone is confronted with a situation where they need to um, confront an individual one-on-one, that's very shaky ground for them. So what they try to do is they tend to triangulate their problem and try to bring other people into it to give them stability. But the problem is, is that ends up as gossip. We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to go to someone as an individual. And if we gossip, then all of a sudden we also are a problem. So we need to keep this one-on-one in this first step between us and that person. And we shouldn't just let it go because if we do, it's going to fester, it's going to grow, it's going to cause other problems. And that's why church discipline matters. It protects peace and unity in a church. So let's say you do the right thing, you don't gossip, you go to someone and you say, hey, you shouldn't be doing this, and you're kind about it, loving, you care about it, it's about reconciliation, but they disagree with you. Or they say, you should relax, you're just being realistic, mind your own business. If they respond in that way, first think about it. Consider it. Are they right? Maybe they are. And if that's the case, let it go. Um, And it's perfectly okay to have another conversation before you move on to the next step. You say, okay, well, maybe I'll think about that a little bit and we can talk about it some more. But if if you've done that and you're confident, however, that they are, what they're doing is sinful and it's something that needs to be addressed, then you should continue for their sake and for the sake of your church. If you don't, things are only going to get worse. So on to step two, you have to do this. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 16. But if he does not listen, you've gone to someone, you've talked to them, they don't listen to you, 
It says, then take with you one or two others that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Step two is involving one or two others. Probably the one or two others should be uh, part of your church leadership, pastor, elders, maybe a, a deacon, whatever it might be, however your church is set up. But that's not necessarily set in stone, though. It doesn't absolutely have to be someone from church leadership. It could be uh, a Sometimes it's good to take someone who is a friend of the person who is uh, committing the sin. Um, sometimes they'll listen to a friend. And as we do this, we're still not gossiping. We're still not backbiting. We're still not sowing discord. We're not triangulating our problems. We're keeping this as, as small and as contained as possible. And when you do that, another thing that does is it prevents a mob justice mentality. Because if these things blow up, which occasionally they do in a church. It's just, all it does is cause division and problems. So you want to keep it contained and small. Prevents gossip, discord, and division. Uh, you want to go through due process. You need to, you have to go through the process. Otherwise, things are going to go pear-shaped. Um, and the people going to speak with you to speak to this person shouldn't be making assumptions one way or the other. Um, they should just be going, seeking what's true. It could possibly be the case that they see the situation um, differently than you and aren't as invested as you. And they look at it and they say, you know what? That's not a big deal. You really need to relax. What they're doing is not a problem. Um, but also it may be the case that the other one or two see things the same way you do. And they also discuss the issue with this person being accused. And maybe it could be the case that after two or three people go to this person, they they stop and they say, you know what, you guys are right and I'm going to repent and I'm going to stop doing whatever it is I'm doing. And again, then if that's the case, it's over. It's done. There's no reason to tell anybody else. There's no reason anyone else needs to know about it. It's It's finished. Or it could be the case that the person caught in sin is having a real problem and they are literally caught in it trapped in it. And they're saying, you know, I was, I've been trying to get this out of my life. I was really hoping it get, it would go away. I'm struggling with this. I want this to end and I need your help. Um, then you'd help them. Okay. If you can't, if you can't help them, then you help them find someone who can, you seek out someone who can, and this, you're still keeping this as small as possible. Um, you're trying to seek reconciliation. You're not gossiping. You're not involving any more people than absolutely must be involved. And this kind of thing can happen at any point in the process. And if someone is struggling with sin, but they're trying to get out of it and working and seeking help, there's no reason for this to go any further than maybe con connecting them with some people that could help them. There's no reason for anyone else to know and if you're the person who's involved in this small little group who's working through this process, it's your duty to help that person. And reconciliation and repentance are always the goal. And if someone's trying, that's good. And we should help them as much as possible. And that may go on for some time. Uh, there may be a lot of conversations. There may be uh, helpful people involved. And that's where it should stay. If that's not the case, and you talk to this person with one or two other people, maybe you talk to them a few times and there's still no sign of repentance of any kind or care or for what's going on. And they're just like, yeah, whatever, you guys are crazy. Get out of my life, get out of my face, whatever they say. That's when you move on to step three. And at this point, uh, the leadership 
of church is definitely involved. And they're going to want to talk to the people involved to gather facts and, and even still seek repentance, reconciliation. Again, it may be the case that once someone, a pastor comes to them and says, hey, you know what? What you're doing is a problem. Uh, that might be enough that they go, well, well, maybe, maybe I need to revisit this. And yeah, this is a problem. And I see what you're saying now. And they repent and they turn away from it. They get their life back on track, whatever they need to do. Again, that's where it stops. But the first part of verse 17 is um, tells us what happens if that's not how it goes, if they refuse to listen. It says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And at this point, um, things have gone pretty far, and they're pretty serious, and there's obvious and openly rebellious. Re- there's a refusal there to, to repent, a refusal to stop the sinful behavior. And this is where I would say that church leaders should step out and take the lead in the process. I know at my church, that's what we would do. Uh, and you're going to have to investigate it and gather facts for obvious reasons. You can't just randomly stand up in front of your congregation with nothing more than interpretations and guesses. You need to have some solid things to present to people. And there needs to be some obvious and agreed upon facts presented to the congregation, to the church. In that doesn't mean that leadership is required to give all the details of everything that may have happened. Um, if you're a church leader, you don't want to give um, more than you have to because you don't want it to be gossip. Um, these things can be very complicated. And there may be, there might be family members involved and people who are connected in ways who are completely innocent and haven't done anything. And, they should be spared as much pain and embarrassment as is possible. Um, and the whole church is not a jury and should hopefully be able to trust the elders' recommendation. And at this point, the church, or elders, leaders, whatever you call them in your church, but um, at this point, the church should pray and, and still seek rec- reconciliation and repentance for the person involved in the sin. And once this has been done, at this point, if it's been brought to the whole church and it's been clarified and facts have been laid out and there's still nothing, no repentance, no change in behavior, that's when we move on to step four. And Matthew, the second part of uh, Matthew 18, 17 says, but if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Step four comes when nothing has happened and the person continues doing the same thing, whatever it is, lying, infidelity, whatever it might be. At this point, the elders do the same thing Paul did in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They pass their judgment on this person and call on the church to do the same, whether they're pastor or whatever they might be. But they pass their judgment on this person, and then they ask the church to follow suit and do the same. Now, if this were to happen— this, it, it, if I were going through this with our church, this is this is kind of what it would sound like. I would I would come into the church and I would say, "Okay, the leadership team, uh, our elders recommend removal of this person from the fellowship of the church for unrepentant gossip or lying, whatever it might be, as an act of church discipline, and that needs to be clarified and explained to them that this motion comes from the church leadership in." If it were me doing it, which most likely it would be in our church, I would then give an opportunity for any discussion or 
any questions. The church was then come to a consensus on the matter, and the final decision would be decided by a two-thirds majority vote of the church. And if the church votes to exclude that person, then the person is excluded from the church. And what that means is that people in the church no longer fellowship with that person. If that person goes to another church, the elders will not give them a recommendation, at least not until they come back and rectify the problems at the church. And that's the way it should be. Matter of fact, if I find out uh, that they are going somewhere, I will probably call the pastor and fill the pastor in. Because I know if I had a problem case coming to my church, I'd want to know about it. And I would hope they would you know, do the same thing for me. But exclusion, it means no fellowship or it means nothing. The person is no longer part of the church. Uh, that person doesn't care about the church and they are being removed from the care of the church. When you dig into the language in that uh, passage of 1 Corinthians 5, it's kind of like, it's almost like surgery. It's like cancer surgery for the church. You're cutting out something that is harmful for the church and removing it. So they're cut off. That means that, means that people in the church don't hang out with them. You, know, you don't go uh, have coffee with them the next day and talk about what happened. You obviously don't have communion with that person. Uh, the Lord's table, that's something that you don't do with them. And personally, in our contemporary day, I would include social media in that. I would, uh, yeah, I'd cut them out of social media too. And some people say, oh, that's so harsh. You're, you're overdoing this or you're mean or you're unloving or whatever. But you've got to think about that. It's not like the church hasn't made every possible effort to reconcile this person. That person does not care at this point. The church is not leaving them. They are leaving the church. Exclusion is the result of their behavior. It's a result of their choices. They could make the choice at any time during this process to make things right, but they refuse to do that. And sometimes that happens. That's how it goes. Uh, and it's probably just pride that causes that, but it does happen. But even after they have been excluded, they could still come back and make things right. They could come back and apologize. Um, whether they're allowed to be a member again would be at the discretion of the elders and ultimately the churches as a whole. Uh, but they can still make things right. And chances are they would be allowed back. And at any point throughout the process, Repentance and reconciliation can occur. Now, <clears throat> I want something just popped into my head that I want to touch on a little bit. And that is I've seen, read um, some church um, documents that require members who go through this process to apologize publicly to the church. Um, and here's my thoughts on that. I think that kind of thing should happen at the same level as the process. And that's kind of how it goes. Um, if it's a one-on-one -on -one thing and the person's like, oh, you're right. Um, thanks for coming to me. I'm, you know, I'm going to stop doing that. Sorry about that. Put you in that position. That's good enough. That's all it takes. If it's two people, it'd be similar. Uh, but, you know, once it goes to the whole church and it, it's come to the point where everybody has to know about it, then, yeah, that person's probably going to have to come up before the whole church and, and explain that, you know, I was wrong. I repent. This is not something I'm, I'm doing anymore and tell the church about it. 
And this is not something that you, it's not, it's not a weapon. Um, and it's, it needs to be used carefully. This is a matter for sins that are outward, that are significant, that are unrepentant, that people are uh, obviously prideful and rebellious about. Uh, and it has to be something that is seen. It has to be something that is, that is heard, that is known. We can't speculate about what's going on in someone's heart. We can't speculate what's going on about in someone's mind. These have to be legitimate, obvious, uh, outward, significant, unrepentant sins, things you know that we're, we're, we're very clear on. And this whole process also requires the application of wisdom. It may be a very slow process um, sometimes. It may stay in different steps for some time. There may be a lot of talking at one step. There may be a step where the we talked about where the two people go to the person, the person's like, you know, I need help. Or that could happen individually as well. And it, it stays in that space for a while. Um, there's been other times that I've seen it move very quickly. I mean, it was so obviously rebellious that those kinds of things, when you took the steps, they're just like, nope. And they just, you know, moved up the scale quickly. And that can happen. But however it happens, um, it must happen. A church is going to end up as whatever it allows. Um, and if what comes from the pulpit is not attended to in the pews, it's pointless. And, and I hope you're in a church where, you know, biblical truth comes from the pulpit um, because that's what you need. And if sin is not a big deal and it doesn't really matter in a church, and everybody just kind of, you know, turns a blind eye and gives the excuse of, oh, well, I love this person or whatever. I don't, I don't know that you really love them if you're not willing to confront them about sin and help them out of it. Um, but before you know it, if, if it's not dealt with, um, it'll grow, it'll fester. There's a few things that can happen with it. It can cause division in a church. It can cause a lot of problems in a church. Um, it can, you know, basically tear a church apart. Uh, another thing that can happen is it can water a church down. Uh, if it's sin, a church doesn't address sin in, in its ranks among its membership, before you know it, a church can become a social club with a life coach who stands at the front each week telling people how to be prosperous and live a good life and never speaks about sin. And in a church like that, what happens is, you know, you've got a bunch of biblically illiterate Christians who don't know what the Bible says. And when people don't know what the Bible says, when Christians don't know, what happens is they they fill in the gaps with how they feel. And doing the right thing becomes whatever you feel is the right thing. But if you ever have to go through this process, don't ever forget the goal is always repentance. It's always reconciliation. This isn't a weapon for punishment. This is church discipline. It's working through this process. It's it's keeping sin out of the church. This is not punishment. There's no part of this that is punishment for someone. It's a tool for reconciliation. If the offender is willing for it to be. There's no punishment on on the part of a church and church discipline. Uh, You know, we're all sinful. We all struggle. We all need each other. Um, We all care for each other. This is for someone who doesn't care. Now, there can certainly be some embarrassment involved with this, but the sooner it gets reconciled, the less embarrassment and problems involved. This is done. It's always done for redemption. It's done for protecting the flock. It's done for 
honoring the name of Jesus, our Savior. It's done for the health of the church. And throughout the process, there's always the constant opportunity for repentance. And that, that's how God works. There's always that constant opportunity that, you know, you've heard the thing that the deathbed confession, well, I'm just going to live my life however, and then on my deathbed, I'm going to confess. That's that's not what this means either. But there's always, God's always available for repentance as long as you're alive. You know, it's just, just like the gospel. Um, the opportunity is always there to repent, to turn to Jesus until it's too late. God's always right there saying, repent, turn to me. This is the same way with church discipline. There's always the opportunity for that. But God's always extending the gift of salvation, uh, the gift of the gospel. He says, I have this gift I want to give you through my son, Jesus. What you need to do is just give up your sinful pride, admit your sin, turn away from it, and turn to me. Um, So there's always that opportunity. But you can't put it off either. It needs to be taken care of as soon as possible, whether it's church discipline or knowing Jesus as your Savior. Well, I hope that someone might find some useful information in this. Um, I hope it might be helpful. I, I, If you're a Christian listening to this and you're part of a church, um, I'm praying for your church. I hope it's an awesome church. And, you know, I hope you guys are doing a, a great job serving Jesus. And I, I hope you have uh, peace and, you know, just stability in doing that. I, I really genuinely do. Um, I care about believers. I care about churches. And I want to see Christianity and churches and individual Christians, Christians do well in the world and represent God well. And I hope in some way that this is helpful for you. But I appreciate you taking the time to tune in. And until next time, have a great week and I'll be praying for you and I'll speak to you again soon.